really super basic polygonal world. It looks more like somebody's artwork than a real place. It looks like it came out of the like the N64 or the original PlayStation era of graphics. Everything's flat shaded, straight lines, and you're by a river next to a fire and there's a fox. And if you looked at it on the screen, you would think, oh, that's kind of pretty. But when you stand there in VR, even though it's very clearly all like this, this computer-generated image, you still feel a sense of presence, like you're there in that place, even though none of it looks like anything that exists in the real world. Hello, and welcome to Conversations. That is T-H-O-M, Versations. It's where the H makes all the difference. Podcast about stories, experiences, and knowledge. How the H are you? I'm Tom Cocaine, your host. And I got to say, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I've had a great summer as uh, we're kind of transitioning into fall here. And uh, it's it's been good. More on that here in a minute. But um, today's conversation is about virtual reality. And I'll talk with Devin Gay. We work together. He's an IT guy uh, with a degree in computer science and a virtual reality enthusiast. He really does know quite a bit about VR and what's being done in that field. And I got to tell you, our talk just blows my mind. I learned so much. And because there are things that are going on that I didn't know were happening. Um, and he, as I said, he's very quite knowledgeable about this. And it's interesting. So if you just know it peripherally, like I used to until I talked to Devin, um, I think you'll find it very interesting and just to know what's going on in that realm and how things are advancing and how it could advance us. We talk about that stuff, so it's good. So stick around. But you know, summertime, how was your summer? You get things done, you go traveling? Um, I did quite a bit of traveling, um, mainly, you know, not too far from home. Like I didn't go travel the world or anything like that. I mainly went to Seattle and, um, I don't know why. I mean, it seems like it's kind of weird. It's just like, okay, going a lot, many times to Seattle. I think I went to see one, two, three, four, five, five times to Seattle this summer. Just kind of happened that way. And it's not like it's really close to my house. Well, it's 300 miles. So it takes, uh, what, five five and a half hours or so just one way. So you're talking about 10, 11 hours of driving on a weekend. I could leave, we'll leave here early. I say early, like eight o'clock in the morning on Saturday, get to Seattle about one thirty, two o'clock and, um, and then start the day, do the stuff, kind of go to bed late, get up early again, have breakfast, leave there. Hopefully, you know, by 10 o'clock or so, get home before five is kind of the hope. So you have some kind of, weekend at home to kind of chill but uh yeah that's that's what that's what's happened with me but you know and the drive is not too bad you might be thinking oh five and a half hours ugh. well it's really not um because we live in moscow idaho which is in the southwest corner um across the border of washington um and so you know so it's the it varies the 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 trip varies quite a bit you get to the rolling hills of the Palouse. There's also a section in there that's uh, kind of scablands-like, uh, go through kind of deserty areas, plus mountain passes. And the weather is different too. So way over on the eastern side of Washington, it's very dry. But as you get more toward the coast, it gets very wet, especially when you cross the Cascade Mountains. The, the, the 
weather is very different across the, the Cascades. And some people who just think of Washington State, they think, oh, it's always wet there, you know, because they think of Seattle. Seattle, it does rain quite a bit, but very different um, weather on east and west sides of the Cascades. But uh, yeah, Seattle trips many times. It was, it was uh, really good. Um, what about your summer? Did you like make plans? I make plans every summer and, um, I get some of them done. I made a, I actually made a list and, uh, didn't, I think I got a few of them done, but I didn't get big ones done. Like, you know, uh, redo the deck, uh, you know, make a, build a porch out front, you know, things like that. Clean the garage. This didn't happen. You know, I did stuff. I got some things done, but you know, you just don't get them all done. You kind of find like, oh, it's a nice warm day. I think I'm going to hang out and then beer happens. And then, you know, you get done mowing the lawn and yeah, you know, it's just summer and just summer is just like, you know, um, I want to do, I want to hang out by water, read a book, listen to music, do my own thing, not stress out too much. I don't know. Maybe... <laughs> Stress is meant for winter time, damn it. Uh, but anyway, like I said, summer's been really good. I hope yours has been too. But, you know, it doesn't matter the season. Summer, fall, winter, it's always a good time for a beer. And there's a great beer waiting for you at Moscow Brewing Company, located right here in Moscow, Idaho, in the good old U.S. of A. They are committed to creating the highest quality ales from ingredients found throughout the inland northwest. They use locally grown grains and hops, and the quality of flavor and the consistency, consistency is key here, it really leaves you wanting another one. And so if you're in town, stop in today and enjoy a selection of ales. They feature uh, flavorful IPAs. They've got really good stouts, everything in between. So check them out, Moscow Brewing Company on Facebook and at Moscow Brewing on Instagram. Well, unfortunately, you can't go there virtually yet, yet, but you'll get some knowledge about virtual reality today, and that is with Devin Gay. Let's let's talk to him. Let's get going here. Let's talk to Devin. Okay, well, um, I think we're good to go. Would All you, right. Um, would you be all comfortable introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. Right, right, right now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, my name's Devin Gay. I... Uh, do IT for a living for the Murrow College of Communication. Um, at Washington State University? At, at Washington State University. Um, in my free time, I play a lot of video games. Uh, actually really wanted to make video games growing up. And that's actually one of the things that led to me being as involved in virtual reality as I am right now. So... Uh, by day, I'm in IT, and by night, I'm a bit of a VR enthusiast at this point. Yeah, you know, it was because um, uh, I was talking to you, mm -hmm. and somehow we got on the conversation of virtual reality, and you said, yeah. hey, we have a virtual reality, what is it called? We, ha we have a VR research lab in Murrow. Yeah, and so you mm -hmm. took me down there and uh, mm -hmm. check checked it out for the really the first time being in a legit virtual reality thing and mm -hmm. it blew my mind mm -hmm. and I just said man you got to come on to my podcast <laughs> and talk about this because I was blown away and you lucked out and found the right person because I can talk about VR for hours I just find <laughs> the technology and the story of how we got here and 
the even the like psychology and physiology behind it is really fascinating. There are so many things that you don't even think about that are absolutely vital to making virtual reality work. And it was kind of like you may you you think about VR from like 10 years ago and it was like some crazy science experiment or it was like super cheap garbage technology, but the truth is we kind of passed this threshold where all of a sudden it works. It just kind of clicked. Everything fell into place. And all of a sudden VR does things that you can't get in any other medium, really. Uh, it's kind of astounding to see it just kind of happen like that. So it's like, so we've reached a tipping point. We have very much so. Is there like a... So, uh, can you say when that was like, I mean, was it just like you say it was just suddenly, I mean, is that, uh, did that happen suddenly or what happened there? So, uh, I want to say five, six years ago, I've lost track of time at this point, but, uh, we saw a company called Oculus start a Kickstarter actually. And interestingly enough, it's kind of took off on Kickstarter of all things, back when it was new enough that Kickstarter was still a really exciting thing. Like everyone was getting really into these Kickstarter campaigns for these really cool new technologies and, and, and video games and other things. And so Oculus launched a Kickstarter saying, Hey, we think that the technology is there and we really want to continue to develop it. And so they started a Kickstarter where several of the reward tiers were to get the prototype headsets. So that's where they came from. Because I remember, mm -hmm. I mean, just just the term. I think that most people have heard of Oculus yes. or even Oculus Rift. Yep. And so Oculus Rift is just basically the the equipment. Yes. That's a type that's like a, a brand of the Oculus. Yes. Right? Okay. So it's like the the, Nint the Nintendo Switch. This would be like the Oculus Rift. The okay. Rift is the, the headset itself. Okay. So they did this Kickstarter thing. They did this Kickstarter thing and they started, you know, shipping out these prototype headsets really early, honestly still pretty pretty rough around the edges. But it turns out that was absolutely vital, honestly, that they actually send out headsets to people ahead of time because once you saw the potential of what it could do and heard about their plan to move forward and progress it, you realized that VR was here and it was only going to get better. Uh, so there, there's something in virtual reality, uh, a, a term that they use called presence, hmm. which in VR, it's, the feeling that you're not just looking at an image on a screen, you're actually in the place that you're looking at. The feeling that you're really there. Yeah. Okay. So this is, it's almost like, um, um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, do, do, do your, you give up reality. What's that called? The not disbelief or reality. The, uh, uh, the, the suspension of disbelief. That's it. That's yes. like when you're watching a movie is what they want. When you're watching a play, it's what they want. And exactly. now you're saying like you put on the, the, the VR equipment and... And you can believe that you've traveled to this place and that you're interacting with a place that is really there. Um, and, and, and so, okay, I'm just going to add to that because, okay, I have very little. The, the, the experience mm -hmm. that I saw, like I've, I've done the ones like, you know, you put your, your you get a uh, cell mm -hmm. phone, 
put it in the little goggles and put mm-hmm. it on your face. And it's it it, it was it was fun, mm-hmm. but this is very um it's all it's uh it's very interactive. Exactly. And there was like a we went to that what's the name of that that top of that hill, the mountain? Uh it was um Vesper Peak. Vesper Peak. And mm-hmm. I mean, I know I'm on a floor. Mm-hmm. Flat surface, mm-hmm. but here I am at the top of this, and I was getting a bit of vertigo. Like yep. you know, if I step Absolutely. over this, I am going to fall off of it. Mm-hmm. And I was too like I was close to an edge. I'm like I wanted to back up from the ledge yep. because in my mind I thought I was at the edge of a cliff. By that same token, there are roller coaster simulators out there, and you feel like you're riding a roller. You want to lean forward and backward going up the hills because you're afraid you're going to fall out of your chair. Even though you're just sitting there completely motionless, It some some force in your brain is telling you, I'm going really fast up and down hills. I'm going to fall. Uh, even though you're most, like a lot of the senses that we would normally attribute to, you know, your sense of balance, you know, your inner ear and things like that, those aren't affected at all by the headsets, obviously. They're not like poking your ears or anything weird like that. They're just showing you images that happen to correspond well with your own movements. Well, and by binaural sound as and well. And binaural sound as well. Uh, that definitely plays a role, but not, it, it, it can play a role, but it's not completely necessary. Uh, it, it definitely helps, like, uh, um, it helps enhance the feeling. Uh, but, Again, there's some there. There's a visual part of your brain that has as much effect on your your sense of balance and things like that as your actual physical senses of your inner ear, which uh, would be the normal like you you know you think your inner ear and the however that mechanism works. I know the details, but I've forgotten them long ago. Yeah, we're not talking about that. We're yeah. talking about VR. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was. That the so the the big difference that sense of presence is huge to understanding why VR is what it is why it's such an important step forward and you can't give that uh, experience to someone without putting them in a VR headset no one is going to understand what it means to feel that sense of presence in VR unless they're actually strapped in and riding a roller coaster or walking around Vesper Peak. Mm-hmm. So getting headsets into people's hands was a hugely important step for Oculus in the early days. And that really, it helped them prove themselves, not just to investors, but to the general public because it was Kickstarter. So they were sending headsets out to just consumers with some money to spend uh, to uh, social media members who can, you know, spread the word, start sharing videos of themselves in VR on YouTube, things like that. And this is also all long before we ever got any of the controllers, which are a whole other aspect of VR that takes it up yet another notch because it gives you a way to not just look at the environment, but actually physically reach out and touch the environment. So and so with those initial Oculus Rift glasses, mm-hmm. what was how would how would you interact? It's just basically walking through spaces, walking through spaces. A lot of it, like your your actual ability to move around, was fairly limited. Like there wasn't a lot of getting up and walking around or anything along those lines because you were pretty much like the headset is tracked by a camera 
that looks and sees the headset in 3D space, and it just translates the headset's position in 3D space into the video game world, uh, which is what it then shows back to you through the screens. So it's not even something that you can really heavily interact with. They would include things like a button you could press, and it would help you interact with things that you're looking at. So like you're looking at a door, and you click a button, and the door opens or something like that. Uh, but one of the really subtle things about what Oculus did that differentiates it from, for example, the, the phone-based VR is having that tracking in 3D space. So yeah, you can't move around or walk around much, but if you like lean to the left or lean to the right, it reflects that in the game world. You can, you can actually move a few feet from either, uh, from side to side and, even if you're just moving like tiny fractions of an inch from side to side, that's reflected in the tracking. That's reflected in your movement in the game world. On a phone headset, you don't get that. You're stuck in an exact point in space uh, with maybe the tiniest bit of like tilt tracking or things like that. Nothing particularly like groundbreaking. Yeah, so like like you're saying, like tilt tracking, that's like with your phone when you can turn it uh, like a landscape or portrait yeah. because it's got a little bit of a, a little thing in there that says, yeah. uh, you know, where gravity is. And so it will change the screen. And so mm -hmm. they would do that just based on what was on the phone. So it's not basically there's not another device looking at you saying, okay, he moved his head a half an inch or whatever so to change the space. It's all because of the phone, not uh, another thing. Exactly. Exactly. It's literally just like tilting side to side. What they, they, in VR terms, they refer to that as three degrees of freedom, which means you can tilt forward and backward. You can tilt left and right, and you can tilt uh, side to side. There's no actual sense of moving from side to side, just tilting from side to side. So the Oculus introduced what they call six degrees of freedom, which is the tilting plus the ability to move up, down, left and right, forward and back. And that makes so much more of a difference than you would ever expect. Because all of a sudden, that, that, that one addition of that extra level of tracking your motion is a huge part of what makes you feel like you're there. It's part of what makes you feel like you have presence there because you're not, again, you're not just looking at a screen, you are looking at a place and you have as much control of how you're viewing that place as you have over viewing a place in the real world. Uh, so even though you're not directly interacting with things, you still feel like you're moving yourself through the space instead of being moved by a device. Uh, so that was, again, another major factor in proving to people that VR is a thing that is unique and new and exciting. And it still is. And it still is. And it's still being developed. Uh, because it turns out that was just one of many, many, many little things that all have to come together to make you feel a sense of presence. Um, another good example is the frame rate. So, uh, Yeah, we were talking about this because I was getting a little woozy. <laughs> after after doing it and that's right. part of that is because of the frame rate right right so uh the frame rate of a computer monitor is 60 frames a second frame rate of like film is something like 24 frames a second somewhere in there um 
when you run virtual reality at 60 frames a second or less, it can make you kind of ill. Uh, because it turns out, even though that's fast, fast enough for your eye, it's not fast enough for your body. It doesn't quite mesh. Like, your, your movements start to feel blurry. You maybe even start to feel a little bit like you're drunk or nauseous. Mm. Um, they found that a minimum of like 72 is okay. And a lot of newer, cheaper headsets run at 72 frames a second. And that's pretty good. Ideally, you want to get 90. So one and a half times faster than most modern TVs and computer monitors run. Uh, But now they're finding that if you bump that up even higher to like 120, 144 frames a second it actually increases your sense of presence. Uh, things, motion starts to feel smoother and more realistic. Um, and so, again, that was another instance where we kind of had to pass this threshold of pushing our, like our, our video equipment to a higher speed before we could make VR a thing that works. Hmm. And there, that's, that's just another example. There are a million other little things along those lines that, that added to the experience that just kind of all had to be there before it could work. Um, another one is like screen resolutions and the size of the screens, you know. Uh, the the uh, smartphone industry actually contributed a lot to Oculus's development because we started to get these super high resolution screens that are small enough to strap to your face. <laughs> so Oculus is yeah. like, okay, the screen technology is there and that's actually one of the hardest parts because screens and developing the kinds of screens that we have now was expensive, expensive and time consuming uh, to get you know your, your 4K Samsung galaxies and things like that. Uh, but once the screen technology was there and it existed on a consumer level, uh, they looked at that and said, Hey, I bet if we made the sensors better on this like terrible smartphone VR, we could make way better VR out of it. And so that was another thing that had to fall into place before Oculus could do what they did. Um, well, so, um, you know, uh, I was thinking about this mm-hmm. and up on that shelf right there, I've got my, my, when I was a kid, I got a Viewmaster, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, you know, that's pretty that's got to be like an initial type of vr where you're mm-hmm. you're looking at two they're, they're slightly different so you yep. get like a it's not quite 3d it's really more mm-hmm. of a 2d effect but it's not flat right so i'm thinking that had to be like one of the first kind of virtual realities um is a absolutely. little view master absolutely and that same principle is still into play in virtual reality um that, that idea of showing each eye a slightly different image, which is something that you see in, you know, all any form of like 3D media, like 3D movies and TV do the same thing. Like they show each, they use trickery to show each eye a different image. So virtual reality does the same thing. You usually have two different images, one being sent through the left lens, one being sent through the right lens. And... Yet another thing that kind of had to fall into place is now all of a sudden your computer, when your computer, when you're playing a video game, your computer is rendering every single frame. It's rendering the game at 
30 to 60 frames a second. And now all of a sudden in VR, we're trying to render at 90 frames a second. But more than that, we have two separate cameras. So normally oh. in a video game, you have one camera, you render right. the game once. Mm-hmm. Now you're putting twice as much effort into your, your rendering. Your video card has to work twice as hard to do the same thing in VR. And so getting video cards, getting computers that were fast enough to render two high-quality 3D graphical images at once at a much higher frame rate than normal was yet another hurdle that had to be overcome before VR could become a thing. Well, you'd almost need two. One Pe- for left, one for right. People have experimented with that, I but uh, the the graphics card manufacturers have never quite got it working right. Huh. Uh, at least that's that's what... I can well, imagine like the graphic yeah. card being as large as the uh, if not larger than the uh, than the 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 brains itself the uh, right. the the what's it called i can my brain isn't working right <laughs> the, the cpu yeah the cpu yeah. The, the i mean you're well that's the thing is when you look at modern graphics cards they're not small uh the yeah the, not like you can see like good, they've got massive fans on them anymore yeah, and heat sinks and they're these big chunky like the size of a book like yeah. the size of a of a of a uh, dictionary kind of devices that plug into your computer. I mean, some people, their their computers are more graphics card than computer. Um, and that's kind of necessary to run VR, especially in the early days. It was necessary to have that level of, like, just raw horsepower behind your computer mm-hmm. to, to play these VR games. Incidentally, as technology progresses, that's changing. Um, so... That was the other thing, and that's one of the things that's still holding VR back to a certain extent, is that most modern VR headsets still require that you be connected to a computer in some way. So there's always going to be a big, thick cable coming out the back of your head, Hmm. going back to your computer. Um, But that's changing in a couple of different ways. Uh, they're, They're coming up with wireless adapters that you can attach to your existing headset, to make them wirelessly talk to your computer. And they're coming out with, well, they've already come out with the Oculus Quest, uh, which is a totally self-contained VR headset and controllers. So just looking at that and what it can do without any wires, without any computer, without anything attached, just total freedom to walk around uh, in a technology that's really honestly still in its infancy. It kind of gives you a a clearer picture of the future of VR and that this is still very much something that's still developing and still getting better with each iteration. But when did the Oculus Rift come out? So the Oculus Rift was released, the the final retail version was released about three, three and a half years ago. Oh, geez, that's nothing. Uh, so, yeah, it hasn't been around for that long. I mean, if you think about it, like uh, just computers, if you yeah. think about, you know, the first apples that were, you know, uh, out there and being able to go into people's homes, mm-hmm. it, the technology was pretty limited. I mean, like you had a green screen or, you know, black and white screen um, mm-hmm. and the mouse was very rudimentary, um, you know, and so here we are just, mm-hmm. you know, not even five years later with the, in the, already have advanced technology quite quite a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. It's grown a deceptively large amount over the past several years. But that's actually something that, ironically, VR has been struggling with because in terms of modern, like, 
in terms of modern computer development, like that's seen as slow. Like the fact that over three years, we've, we're just now seeing the second generation of VR headsets when the first generation was a whole three years ago. People, people for a while now have been like, oh, VR's dead. It didn't take off. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, but really, it's just starting. Um, well, so and yeah. you've, been, you've been able to do something similar to this with like mm. uh, the Wii. Right. Uh, Nintendo Wii, like when you mm-hmm. can, uh, you know, like bowling was the big one or golf mm-hmm. or tennis, those types of things where you just have the little stick mm-hmm. and you go back and forth, but it knows where you are on the screen. Exactly. Uh, with just the little paddle type things that you have. So something that I always thought was really interesting and kind of, kind of funny to think about. So the other major player right now in VR or, or the other major player, let's say three years ago when things were really taking off on the consumer market was the HTC Vive. That's actually the one that you tried. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. So the HTC Vive in a lot of ways, kind of like I like to think of it this way, uses the same technology as the Wii just on a much larger scale. Hmm. Because the Wii actually had a little infrared camera inside the controller oh. that looked at little infrared lights on top of your screen. And that's how it knew where you were pointing the controller. Well, the HTC Vive has dozens of little infrared cameras dotted all over it. And it looks at infrared lasers that are being sweeped around the room. And that's how it tells its position in space. So it really just takes the... A, a similar technology to what they did with the Wii motes back in the day and like expand it, mass produce it, turn it into like a full array of sensors instead of just one. And that thing with the, with the Vive too, you've got what, three different sensors so you can get 3d space like around the room. There are different. It actually, things. it actually only needs two. Actually, that's a lie. It only needs one. It can tell its location in 3d space with just one sensor uh, but you want more than one because then you eliminate like dead zones. So like if you're turned around facing the wrong way and the controller is really close to your body, then maybe the controller and the sensor can't see each other and you, you get a, a occlusion is what they call it in, mm-hmm. in the VR world. Um, and then your controller loses tracking and you don't know where your hand is. Um, <laughs> So having multiple sensors around the room is mostly just a way to uh, eliminate that kind of occlusion uh, so that you'd never lose tracking. But the technology is actually robust enough that you only need the one, uh, they call it a lighthouse, sitting in your room uh, sweeping lasers across the room uh, for your headset and your controllers to see and to figure out their positional space. And now you don't even need that with the, the Oculus Quest. With the Oculus Quest, it takes it another step further. So it how has, does it do that then? It has cameras built into it, and those cameras are able to map out the room that you're in in 3D space. It actually uses a... a Man, I, I don't even know that much about how that technology works because it's so far out there, but it can by just moving around a little bit, tell the shape of the room around you and figure out your location in 3D space just by looking at it. Uh, so it actually, I believe it actually maps it out in like a 3D, like figures out where the floor is and where different points around the floor are and can, it, 
it's effectively magic at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's getting to that point where it effectively feels like magic. Like I can kind of explain how like the, the Vive works and the Oculus works, but with these newer headsets, it's getting really, really cool. Uh, the kind of technology that goes into it. So you no longer really the, the, um, with the cameras then. So do, mm-hmm. there are still things that you need cameras. Do they like when I'm saying the 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 lighthouses that you're talking about? Somebody that's going that's shooting lasers, trying to get your your see where everything is. Mm-hmm. Um, is. So is that like just a higher level, or is it with because with this quest thing you don't really need those things? So there, where does it sit? There are trade offs depending on mm-hmm. what kind of tracking you're looking at. You know they they tend to call the Oculus Quest and other similar headsets inside-out tracking, the idea that the headset is looking out at the world and seeing what what the world looks like and using that information to build a tracking system. Um, The HTC Vive, it's a little bit different. They tend to call it outside-in, but that's still not totally accurate because technically the sensors and cameras are on the headset itself, kind of like the Oculus. But uh, the big difference is that because you have these these lighthouses sweeping lasers across the room and you have more sensors all over the headset and the controllers, uh, and there's a lot less intensive processing required for each of those cameras. They're actually really simple little devices that just, you know, they do some basic math and send some numbers back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have a lot more of these sensors and have a lot more detailed fine tracking with a lot less occlusion. The one disadvantage, the biggest disadvantage that the Oculus Quest has compared to like the HTC Vive is that if you put your hands behind your back, it has no idea where your hands are. Uh, Which is usually not a big deal, (laughs) but every once in a while, the thing is with, with some of the games you play, you get so into it, you might be, you know, staring at an enemy or something, trying to to aim your your weapon and trying to reach behind you to grab something else. And then with something like the Oculus Quest, which is a little bit uh, less expensive, lower-end headset, uh, honestly, uh, you might not be able to accomplish that as well. But And when you say uh, lower-end, like you're talking like, what's it cost for the Quest? Quest is, the Quest is about $400. Well, that's uh, that's... You know, I think yeah. relatively inexpensive. Oh, absolutely. For a complete, something that's only three years in the uh, market f- right. for individuals to have. Right. And you're, and do you need anything else? Do you have to have a computer with it? Do you? Nope. That's it. With the Oculus Quest, that's all you need. It, it comes with the headset and the two controllers right there in the box, and that's it. It connects to your Wi-Fi to sync itself up with an app store, so you can uh, buy games and experiences and download them straight onto the headset and it's all totally self-contained uh so it's it's extremely convenient and the price is extremely reasonable i mean it's on par with the the major video game consoles at launch you know the uh, playstation 4 when it launched was i think around that price I yeah actually i think sure. they're like 600 i think they're yeah. like 599 but you know 599 but, but still yeah I mean, you're getting in that same price realm of like a, a video game console which is really what it is at this point like the oculus quest is almost marketing itself as the video game console of vr meanwhile the the higher end experiences 
for example, I think the the full setup for the HTC Vive, which is three years old at this point, I think it's still like five hundred dollars, uh, brand new, and you have to have a high quality, like high power gaming machine to hook it up to, which is probably another thousand bucks on top of that. So for for the the higher quality tracking without any sort of wireless freedom, you're still looking at about fifteen hundred dollars probably to get going for for a higher end for for uh, at this point that would be considered like mid level VR. Oh, okay. Uh, the latest greatest headset is the Valve Index, which. It, Valve, that's uh, like uh, the big company for like uh, the Steam. You can go online and yep. you can buy, got all kinds of video games on there. That uh, yep. So Valve is the company, right? Yep, Valve is the company that, that owns and operates Steam, the, the online digital distribution store for video games. That's kind of become the de facto like place to buy video games online for yeah. your PC. Yeah. Um, so, But they started a, to get into this. They started to get into this a lot. So, in fact, the HTC Vive, which is the major competitor to the Oculus Rift when it all started, like, hit the consumer market three years ago, even though it was manufactured and sold by HTC, all of the technology behind it was developed by Valve. Uh-huh. Uh, so what's, uh, there's actually a bit of drama there. Because <laughs> Valve was really interested in Oculus. In fact, uh, the... Uh, uh, Gabe Newell, the I believe CEO of Valve. I don't know if they they're they're a strange yeah. company. They're not quite yeah. structured that way. Yeah, he's, and, he's, and he's, an, he's and he's a strange man as he, well. He's an interesting fella, but yeah. he you know he's the he's the big guy at Valve. He's the founder basically. Uh, uh-huh. He backed the Oculus Kickstarter. Uh, he was all in on VR. He he saw this as the way forward, really, and still does. Uh, there was some drama. Uh, the most notable thing that happened probably was when Oculus was sold to Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and that, I, I don't know if that was the biggest rift, like the biz- biggest cause of the, the rift uh, between the two companies, but it sort of set Valve on a path where they weren't so happy with what Oculus was doing anymore, and they decided they wanted to develop their own headset that would be more open and available to developers, actually. Hmm. So Valve has a long history of encouraging, like, indie developers and, you know, encouraging the little guy to build, like, their own games and distribute them on the Steam store, you know. Steam was one of the first, like, big markets that little independent game developers could start selling their their games on uh, through things like their... um, Oh, I forget what it was called. Um, I think it was Greenlight, something like that. Hmm. Uh, so, and before that, Valve was huge. They were all about making games that could be modded. So, Half Life, way back in the day, had this huge scene of small independent developers or even just casual guys using Valve's engine and their art assets and their resources to make their own little games that they could redistribute online sometimes for free sometimes for pay sometimes they would get a license and actually make a real game using valve's game engine Hmm. uh but so valve has this long history of honestly supporting 
the little guy supporting small indie developers and and people who just want to be a part of a community and build games um and so they saw oculus get gobbled up by facebook and come up with this idea of kind of a closed market where they have the final say on what gets distributed for their games and valve wasn't totally happy about that so they started developing their own headset their own technology and they partnered with htc to build and distribute it and that was the htc vive Hmm. And so that's where all the lighthouse technology came from, the the lasers shooting around the room and the sensors that detect them. That was all built and designed by Valve. So HTC releases the HTC Vive. It is very strong competition against Oculus. Uh, Which which headset is better is still kind of a toss-up between the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive. It really depends a lot on what your preferences are. But the one thing that the Vive did that Oculus did not initially do was push out controllers. So the HTC Vive, by default, you buy it with a set of controllers, one for each hand. And those controllers are also tracked in 3D space. So not only are you able to move and look in 3D space and experience a sense of presence that way, you can reach out with these controllers and pick things up and interact with them and throw them and pull levers and swing swords around and fire a bow and arrow like you're firing a real bow and arrow. And that's something that Oculus didn't initially have. All they had was a headset at launch. It wasn't until after uh, Valve and HTC announced that they would be releasing their Vive wands with the headset that Oculus kind of kicked it into gear and released their own Oculus Touch controllers about six months later. Uh, So the Oculus headset was around for about a year. Six months later, the HTC Vive releases, and then almost immediately after that, Oculus is really busting butt trying to get their own version of a a tracked controller out the door. Wow. So um, to kind of go back a bit here, because Mm -hmm. you've got... Valve, mm-hmm. uh, and then Facebook, uh-huh. and Facebook is a monster. It I is. Mean, like, and I, I don't mean it that. Really I mean, is. I, I mean I, the, you can take no, that I, in either way. I mean, it's it's monster as is a huge exactly. monster they're of huge. a company is what they're I was getting huge. at. They have deep pockets. They have very deep pockets. That's what I meant by monster. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can take if you think they're an evil company. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. But I mean, mm-hmm. you've got this monster of a company, mm-hmm. and then you've got Valve. That I mean, I I know of Valve because I right. you know, I'm kind of in the technology, you know, I follow it. I'm, you know, I'm way behind, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but I follow it. Um, and, uh, so if, where do, do people have to be concerned with, like, you have these things that are looking at their, the space and 3d mapping their home. Do they have to worry about, um, uh, their privacy? Uh, especially the mapping of their home. Where's that information going? Most of that stays local to the headset, but the truth is, I mean, like any of the technology that you're giving all of these permissions to and all of this information to, it's as you can only trust it as much as you trust the people behind it. So, you know, if you, if you have trust issues with Facebook, you may not want to invest in an Oculus headset now because you, you have, you actually have to have a Facebook account tied to your Oculus account. Oh, Uh, So, 
you're buying games effectively through Facebook when you buy games for the Oculus. Wow. Through the Oculus store. Okay. And that's just another thing that Valve didn't necessarily agree with in terms of like Oculus's strategy. Yeah. Especially after they were bought by Facebook. There 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 were other other issues, but you can start to see the the clash between ideals. You kind of have Valve who's very interested in openness and supporting developers and you have Oculus who really wants to have a closed market uh, where only they can say what games are released on the Oculus store. Um, whereas the approval process for getting a game on Steam is you have to pay like a $100 fee and build all your like your game store page and make sure you're not like breaking any laws or anything like that when you mm. do that, like no no breaking copyright or anything like that. For creating and then your own game. For creating your own game and putting it on Steam. Like that's all it takes. It's not hard to put a game on Steam. But to but then but to but to use the 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 Thrive, mm-hmm. right? Then the, the Vive. Vive, sorry, the Vive. Uh-huh. Then you don't need to well, you don't need to have an, a separate account. You have to have some account, I'm assuming. You, you do still have to have... Like an email address so and... You have to have a Steam account okay. to use uh, an HTC Vive. But there's a lot less information that has to be tied to your Steam account as opposed to your Facebook account. Yeah, where they may not... You don't they, have to have a profile. You don't have to give them... Your friends' names yeah. and all that. You really... I don't even know that you have to give them credit card information if you just want to play free games that are available. You can you can get away with that. In fact, hmm. one of the... This is almost getting into a totally separate conversation, but you can buy games on Steam's digital store with cash. You can buy a Steam card in a retail store, and you never have to give anyone any credit card information or anything like that. Well, I so, like that. That's that's really cool. It's actually really appealing in a lot of countries that don't have a robust payment system yet. Uh, there are a lot of countries that there there's a demand for people to play games, and they can buy stuff through Steam with their local currency by paying cash. It's actually really common uh, throughout the world. Um, so that's, again, that's one of the big clashes between Valve and uh, Oculus slash Facebook is that notion of the accessibility of their storefront, um, both hmm. to consumers and to developers. But it seems like the Oculus has come out with a product that is way easier to access for the common man. 400 bucks it's is true. not cheap. Let's say, you know, um, mm-hmm. but... You, I mean, it's accessible. You can save up. You can, you can imagine anybody. I think with a job can imagine saving up four hundred dollars and buying that. Absolutely. But you know, when you're talking about the HTC uh, Vive, that I mean, you've got you have to have a computer attached. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking, you know, mm-hmm. a couple grand, and Absolutely. then you're in. Absolutely, and even more so if you want the actual latest greatest headset, because Valve broke off their partnership with HTC because they. Again, they didn't like some of the things that HTC were doing. Yeah, and HTC uh, is predominantly known as a phone company. Yeah, they're mostly smartphones. Which yeah. I mean, they they have channels to things like the screens that you need because actually, VR head processors. Yeah, so VR headsets and smartphones still use basically the same screens in a mm. lot of ways. Mm. Um, and actually, there's a whole other rabbit hole you can get <laughs> go down about screen quality and the. Like some kinds of screens have better dark levels, but like the screens that you commonly see on smartphones, when you look at them in a VR headset, you get this weird, like they call it the screen door effect, 
where it's like you're looking out through a screen door because you can actually see... Oh, pixels. You can see the space between the pixels. Oh. Yeah, and so it makes like a grid mesh pattern over everything. But so Valve released the Valve Index this summer. That's the latest, greatest consumer-level VR headset, and it's a 1000 bucks for the whole setup. Uh, on top of whatever you want to spend on a computer that's powerful enough to run it. Uh, but the big advantage that the the two big advantages that it has are that the headset is easily the highest quality VR headset on the market. It's extremely comfortable. It runs at a, a very high frame rate. It's the one that can pull 120 to 144 frames a second. Wow. Um, it is literally designed to be worn for an extended period of time. They wanted to build a VR headset that you could wear for eight hours straight without even noticing that it's there. Um, do you have one? I do. Yeah, of course you do. Of course I do. <laughs> so uh, I should I should say I'm I'm not just talking up. Uh, I have five different VR headsets at home. Cool. Uh, five full setups, and part of that is because. I'm kind of interested in developing games for them. That's something else, okay? Yeah. Let's let's go there. So yeah. So how do you create a game in VR? I mean, in virtual reality. I mean, you're not sitting there coding. Do you? How how does that work? Do you have to wear the headset the whole time? What? How does that work? So, th- this that is actually something that really struck me when I got my my HTC Vive like two three years ago now. Uh, I think two and a half years ago I got it. Uh, so I, I was always interested in developing video games. That's actually one of the things I wanted to do when I went to college was uh, develop video games. I have a degree in computer science, and I, I went into that degree program thinking, man, I'm going to learn how to build video games. And then five years later, I'm like, man, video bil- building video games is hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that, that was, you know, that was 10 years ago that I got my degree Oh God, it's been 10 years already. <laughs> Cong- um, happy birthday or <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. Uh, so, you have know, have a that, drink, man. We're, we're, oh, yeah, we're God, drinking. No uh, what are we drinking? We're drinking goat meal stout. Yeah. So yeah, cheers, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tasty. So, back in the day, I got my degree in computer science thinking I'm going to make video games and it was really difficult back, back then. It's so, difficult now. I mean, they take like, you know, well, okay. Entire, you know, hundreds and thousands of people to make video games. That's where I'm going, though. Okay. It's actually not. Okay. It's not as hard. It's not even close to as hard to make video games right now as it used to be. Uh, yes, there are still these huge development companies that have hundreds and thousands of people uh, spending millions of dollars to make these giant, big budget AAA games. But there are also a lot of like, small studios made up of a handful of people or even developers working totally solo, completely alone, who are making video games and being very successful at it. Uh, One of my favorite recent success stories that is actually one of the things that inspired me is Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, It's the goofiest, it's it's really just the silliest thing because, you know, 
the premise of the game is that you're a security guard in a Chuck E. Cheese style restaurant and you're clicking buttons and the, the, the animatronics on stage, they come to life at night and they try to break into the room and kill you. And so you're just trying to shut the doors on them and keep them out. It's like the simplest point and click game. He's made like six or seven games now and they've made him a millionaire and he still makes them by himself. Wow. Just one guy. Uh, he he commissions things like uh, uh, voice work and sometimes music from other people, but for the most part, he just makes these these really basic games himself. And just one guy working alone, he's got. I mean, he's got a, a, a movie in the works. Uh, he's got action figures and toys and all this this and that and the other thing. And he's made he's kept the rights to the series to himself, but he's he's made millions on it easily. Wow, I can so see that as inspiration. It, it is, and so the thing is, so the premise of Five Nights at Freddy's is that you're standing in a room. You're reaching out and pushing buttons, and you're looking at a screen in front of you. So you're doing a lot of looking around, reaching out and poking things with your fingers. It's like the perfect fit for VR. And in fact, there is now, as of this year, an official Five Nights at Freddy's VR game. But long before that, back when I first got my headset, I had it in my head that I was going to make my own Five Nights at Freddy's VR and so that's actually what my first uh, real video game development project. It was just a fan game, so I'm not expecting to. I'm not even attempting to make money off of it, because that's a good way to get yourself sued. Yeah. But, um, but you made one. But I made one. So I. I that and was, did you make it for VR? I did. I made it for VR. Well, Five what's Nights it, at Freddy's VR? What's uh, it called? Let's well, call Vive Nights at Freddy's. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I was real proud of that name. Well, that is pretty good. Yeah, uh, and I've, to be honest, I've kind of wanted to change that name, but I just can't let go of the pun. Why? 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 Well, why because change it? because now I've made my game p- compatible with Oculus headsets as well. Uh, so people see the name and they're like, "Vive, is it compatible with the?" That's like the uh, num- okay. The no, number one question I would get from people is, "Is this game compatible with the Oculus Rift?" Yeah, um, yeah, it, you know, it, but it's. But yeah. I love the pun because mm-hmm. I mean, conversations. Come on, so I mean, <laughs> right? Of course, yeah. uh, <laughs> we're in, we're in the same realm, man. Mm-hmm. So, oh, when, yeah. but when you're making that game in V for VR, what? How do you do it? So. Uh, the funny thing is it's really similar to making a normal video game or any any other kind of video game. You use a lot of the same tools. So I work in a game engine called Unity. Uh, there, it, It's completely free to use, especially for educational purposes, but as long as you're not making any money off of it, they let you use it for free. Um, there's another similar engine uh, called Unreal, uh, but these two things, they're they're free things that you can download to make games, and they're extremely powerful. Basically, when you think about the things that a video game has to do on a basic level, like drawing graphics, letting you interact with things, uh, Unity and Unreal, they do all the heavy lifting. They figure out how to draw the graphics. They figure out how to like map user inputs to actions, things like that. You really just have to have maybe some basic programming experience, which I, I have because I'm a computer science major. I would <laughs> yeah. hope I I would hope that I came away from that with at least some basic programming experience. Um, 
and maybe a little bit of artistic talent if you want. But the fact is that, so at the time that I got this, I don't think I'd even touched a programming language in like six or seven years. Uh, And after getting all the tools installed, I followed a tutorial and I was able to pick up a ball and throw it around the room in VR in about 20 minutes. Wow. It, it's that quick to have, you know, a, a base level of interaction in VR. So that's, what the, that, you know, that's great because I mean, that makes you want to do it more because already exactly. you see success. Exactly. And that was one of the big driving forces is that there are so many little successes that you can build up very quickly with some of these really advanced and really accessible tools that are out now. Yeah. Uh, Unity being the one that I use, uh, I, I have the most experience with it. It's a little bit more oriented towards programming, so I felt a little bit more at home there. But it's so easy right now to just download one of these engines and install it, find a tutorial, maybe maybe find some paid assets that you want to use if you want to like have a nicer looking character in your video game or something like that and just plug and play and build your game like you're playing with Legos almost. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that changed dramatically from when I first got my degree thinking I wanted to make video games to now is it's so much more accessible. These tools for creating these complex things are extremely accessible, easy to learn, easy to use, and right off the bat, compatible with VR. So really, learning to make a VR game is probably the easiest you could ever hope it could possibly be. Wow. You know, and I, okay, I have no experience making a video game, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to compare it to making a website. Sure. Because when I, like, uh, you know, I... I'm an old guy, mm. right? So I mean, I remember when there were billboards, right? And mm. so making a website was <laughs> like, it took coding. It right. took a long time. It was not an easy thing. Mm-hmm. But when I made conversations here just um, just before the first of the year, mm-hmm. it's point and click. Yep. I mean, it's it's that yep. simple. The hardest part was trying to figure out how to upload the audio to, to uh-huh. get it to the website. <laughs> and then, you know, and then how do you want it to look? You right. know, it's just very basic stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, so now it's even to that with video games and VR. It's getting there. Yeah. Um, obviously there's still a lot like you can, you can build the things that other people have already done very, very quickly by following their guides and tutorials. But if you want to build something unique and something that represents you, obviously you have to learn a lot, a, a much deeper level of understanding oh, of game true. design, of programming, of development, and all the processes that are behind it, all the design processes. Um, but you can get functionality. You can in, get functionality. You can basically, yeah. Excuse me. So if you get like a, your your game, you have an idea for the game, you can basically get to that game point yeah. within a relatively short time. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really one of the, the, the things that systems like Unity and Unreal really pushed for is that, that ability to build prototypes very quickly, that uh, rapid prototyping. Um, it's a system that serves a lot of indie developers very well. Some very successful games, both VR and non-VR, were developed with these game engines. And so so that kind of leads into something really, really interesting and unique about the virtual reality like market right now. 
which is that you have these headsets that are these really expensive, complex, high-end devices developed by companies with really deep pockets like Facebook and Valve. And all of the really cool games for them are developed by these tiny little indie developers that are <laughs> like two or three man teams. So the, the most popular VR game on the market right now, hands down is called beat saber. Uh, it's a music based game. Think like guitar hero with lightsabers. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. It, and it's exactly as cool as it sounds. It's, a, it's so much fun to play and it was developed by a three man team from the Czech Republic. And it's sold millions of copies on all VR headsets on all markets. Uh, within like a year of releasing their game, they had ported it to the PlayStation VR, which is another interesting major player in the VR scape right now is PSVR. Um, and it's this tiny little team of guys uh, who, again, they, they made it huge, like super huge, uh, making this game in this, this like newly developed market that even though the 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 hardware and the tools are all provided by these massive major deep pocket players they're provided to the little guys the guys who are get, just getting started the guys who are you know playing around with tools in their their living room guys like me yeah <laughs> nice you got to like that i i it it really it's a really fun dynamic and it's something that I think that we haven't really felt in the the technology space just in general since probably like the early 90s late 80s when when computers and early video game consoles were just getting big uh you think back to the days of like the Nintendo 64 where Goldeneye yeah super popular game and Maybe you can play you've it with four it. people yeah, you can play it with four people on one TV screen. Yeah, uh, that was not de- not not easy, but yeah, that was developed by nine people, and only one of those people had ever made a video game before. Really? Yeah, that's true. Wow, well, I have a brother-in-law that uh, will be happy to hear that because he <laughs> loves that game. Yeah, yeah, team of nine people built that game from scratch. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy, and you you don't for for say the early 2000s, that was unheard of. Like video games were developed by huge companies and large teams. Like indie developers weren't really a thing. And there's kind of been this like resurgence of indie games lately, uh, maybe powered somewhat by the release of game engines like Unity and Steam, tools that make it easy to release games like that. And they're doing very well from them for themselves, but they're also maybe kind of competing with the big budget triple A action games, and so they've got a lot of tough competition there. But meanwhile, you move to the VR market. The VR market is still a little too niche for the big budget developers to release any major games for it. So it's a lot of indie developers kind of running the game. Uh, well, you know, and if you've got a good fun game to play mm-hmm. it can be so simple i mean uh, like, absolutely uh i think back to um you know the the very first cell phones mm-hmm. um w- that actually had a screen on them mm-hmm. um where you know snake i can't tell you how often i played snake uh-huh. i mean still on your i think on every pcs don't you still get solitaire and oh yeah um, and my landmine and yeah, minesweeper, minesweeper. Yep. That's it. I mean, it's like very, very simple games, but mm-hmm. fun to play. Oh yeah. 
Uh, what's interesting about a lot of those games is that they were originally designed to help people learn how to use their computer. So Solitaire introduced you to the idea of clicking and dragging on things. Uh, Minesweeper introduced you to clicking and right-clicking to set flags on on squares, things like that. Hmm. Um, so uh, a certain number of VR games are kind of built around the same premise. They're trying to get you used to the idea that you're you're active in a VR space and that you have these controllers in your hands that can interact with things. Um, so... Like an early, er, if you look at Valve's first VR game that was made public, it's called The Lab. It was their, like their free game that they pack in with the HTC Vive. And actually anyone can go download and play it on any VR headset. And it has a bunch of different experiences that are kind of designed to give you an idea of what VR is capable of. So you've got you've got an arcade shooter in there where you you have a little actually it's a little spaceship that takes the place of your controller and so you're flying the ship just by moving your hand around in 3D space and trying to dodge bullets and things like that. Super arcadey, but it reminded me the most of Space Invaders oh, actually. Yeah. Um it's it it was really like <laughs> VR's equivalent dun, dun, yeah dun, 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 dun. of Space Invaders. Um then they have uh, Vesper Peak, which you tried, which gives you an idea of the sense of presence and the feeling that you're in a real place. Yeah, it was. It uh, was. It looked like I was. It was very realistic. Mm-hmm. It's. It's just. It's yeah, like you're in a photograph of the exactly. Place. And so that actually uses a technology called photogrammetry, which is basically mapping out the environment you're in by taking lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of pictures from a, a central point. Um, and all the software to do that is out there and it's either free or cheap. And so they made the tools available uh, to go take pictures of places and build out photogrammetry data, import that, those places into VR and share them for the world to see so you can go out and uh, visit Paris in VR using the data that somebody collected by taking photos. Or my all-time favorite, I never get tired of it, is you can use data gathered by the Mars rover to go to Mars in VR. Oh, my God. Yeah, that yeah. would be so cool. It's really cool. I love it. Uh, the fact that that's a thing that you can do, like... Uh, and I don't, I don't understand how more people haven't done it or heard of it because it's just the coolest thing in the world. Wow, to I'm me. surprised they haven't done that with. Uh, well, because there aren't any rovers on on the moon, but yeah. the moon would be cool to do as well. They've built some. There, there are some uh, Apollo mission based VR experiences out there that are that are pretty interesting. I don't know if I've tried any of them yet myself, but. That's the thing is there are so there's so much content out there right now for VR and a lot of it kind of goes uh, unnoticed I guess uh, maybe because there's a lot of it but also maybe because I don't know I don't know but there's there's a lot out there to experience if you if you really want to sit down and just go through all of the locations you can visit all the games you can play there's a lot. Yeah, uh, I can, and and it's all made by right now, like you said, like like independent. Uh, Absolutely, like small groups, small teams, or even just people working totally alone. 
Now, there's also something else called augmented reality. Yes. So what's the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality? Uh, so the idea behind augmented reality is that you're taking the real world and you're adding to it. You're augmenting it, exactly like the name says. Uh, so you're not building a reality from scratch, which would be virtual reality. You're taking something and overlaying it on the top of it. And the thing about augmented reality is that it has a pretty wide like range of things that it encompasses. So, for example, you have apps on your phone like Pokemon Go, where you yeah. can turn on the augmented oh, reality right, mode, right. and it puts the Pokemon there running around in the real world on your screen. That's one kind of augmented reality. Another kind of augmented reality that is maybe gaining traction, but it's a lot more complicated problem to solve than people realize, is where you have a headset that's very similar to a VR headset, and it actually takes your view of the real world and overlays virtual reality on top of it in some way, shape, or form. The, the big example of that that's not on the consumer market yet is Microsoft's HoloLens. Um, the most famous demo that I think they showed off of the HoloLens is in Minecraft, where they hmm. walk out on stage and they have a table in front of them that's just a normal empty table. But when they look down at the table through their HoloLens headset, they see the world of Minecraft on the table like it's a playset that they can then interact with. Um, and so that's the idea behind augmented reality is being able to take the, the real world that you live in and put some kind of virtual thing into it. Oh, so that way, you know, you wouldn't uh, necessarily run into your table and knock over your plants and yeah, kick the cat, that type of thing. That's definitely one big advantage. Of it. <laughs> um, it has maybe, so I'm, I'm kind of torn on which I like more because I do like VR a lot. I, I actually, you know what? I'm not that torn. I like VR more than augmented reality because I like the idea of going into a, a completely new virtual world that literally doesn't or even can't exist in the real world. But augmented reality has a lot of really neat possibilities as well, especially when you start looking into like the enterprise space or businesses or even things like, you know, training somebody, you can have an augmented reality app that maybe, I don't know, overlays data on top of the thing that you're looking at. So maybe you're looking at like a car's engine and your augmented reality headset can pick out the pieces of it and tell you what they are mm. in, a, in a display in real time that you're looking at while you're looking at the thing. Or to go into, say, to go into say I'm thinking of like Iron Man in the movies right a little bit Iron Man kind yeah, of, it's kind that of kind like of that idea. Kind of, so like he has this there's a thing there yeah. maybe, like if you're thinking of like uh, where he kind of takes something with his hand and moves exactly. it exactly that type of thing maybe not like uh, the virtual yeah that that's actually you know, that that's a really solid like uh, that that's pretty much what augmented reality's dream is, is to be that scene in Iron Man <laughs> yeah. where he's, you know, he's standing in front of his workbench and he's just shoving holograms out of the way, things yeah. like that. That's, that's a pretty, uh, pretty solid representation of what they want, like the HoloLens to be able to do. 
But right now, instead of like it just being there, you have to have equipment on your on you your do. body, like you do. especially over your eyes to see these yep. things. Uh, I'm, I would imagine the goal is to eventually reduce that to be small enough that it'll fit into normal glasses. Yeah. Uh, and actually, if you look at um, what was it, the Google Google glasses? Yeah, Google Glass. Yeah. I think. Yeah, Google Glass. That was actually probably a bit ahead of its time in what it was trying to accomplish. But I would imagine way ahead of its time. I would imagine way. something like uh, in that form factor is a goal for VR within the next VR and AR within the next 20 years, maybe we'll see. Huh? Yeah. Cause I remember like one of the things that would show, they would say like, uh, um, you're maybe going to see someone. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, you, you don't remember their name mm-hmm. and it would say, this is Bob Jenkins. You're like, mm-hmm. Oh, Bob, how you doing? Like <laughs> make, make it sound like, you know, you remember their name. And they're like, Oh yeah. Hey, you, mm-hmm. but <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and now here we are with the the virtual reality of headsets, and the thing too that really impressed me was the sound of those because you because you were in the room as well. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see you in the room, right? And you could see me just walking around. You took some mm-hmm. video of me, kind of like you know, looking weird because <laughs> you know when you're wearing these things, you've got and you've got. Uh, uh, um, controllers. Uh-huh. You just—it looks like you've got headset yep. on with controllers, but you are actually yourself. You're trying to interact with this uh-huh. this virtual world. No, taking taking video of people in VR is one of my favorite things because <laughs> you you look goofy no matter what you do. Yeah. You people look silly when they're interacting with things in VR, and I I actually kind of like that aspect of it because you kind of stop caring when you realize everyone looks like a goofball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's kind of like dancing in that way. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you kind of get your own and it's the same thing. So like, like Beat Saber, um, really popular music game. You're pretty much just flailing your arms around like, like an air traffic controller trying to fight a swarm of bees. Um, <laughs> but it's so much fun to play. Like when, once you get in there, you don't care that you look like a goofball because you're just there in that world doing that thing. And it's so much fun. Um, I want to yeah. play it now. You know, so doing research for this, because, mm-hmm. you know, I know, I knew very little. Mm-hmm. I still know very little about this. Just, mm-hmm. uh, But there's something that I found on the internet that was great about what virtual reality can do. And mm-hmm. that is, the quote is, uh, whenever it's too dangerous, expensive, or impartial to do something in reality, virtual reality is the answer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love that. Uh, so it's got to be used in like the military, I would think. Or... Oh, yeah. There, there, there are, so, so there are already uh, companies developing things like training exercises for police and firefighters that take place in VR. I'm sure it's in use by the military, but we'll probably never hear about it. Um, At least not for a long time still. I'm sure a lot of that is pretty hush hush, but you know, training firefighters, training policemen, a really popular one that I think it might've been developed here at UW or or here in the state uh, somewhere is uh Washington State somewhere in Washington State was a a training app for surgeons 
where you can perform virtual surgeries in ahead of, ahead of time before doing the real surgery to familiarize yourself with well, the steps yeah. and processes. Yeah. And the thing is the the level of like the the fidelity of the tracking is on a sub millimeter level at this point. So you get the kind of high precision work that you need for something like that. Uh, wow. And how, yeah. so um when I think of these things and like mm-hmm. you're talking about uh, the you know the high precision that's going on mm-hmm. there the do you think that the movie Ready Player 1 or that book was had much influence in what we're seeing today? Ready Player 1, the people who developed that movie worked very closely with a lot of actual existing VR tech companies. Uh the moving floor that he stood on uh, that he ran ar- runs around on in his his apartment. Uh-huh. That's a real thing. That's a real product that is being developed. It costs about ten thousand dollars to buy one, uh, and it's still like in development. But that is real technology. Wow. Yeah. And, and so basically, for people who don't know, Ready Player One is basically a futuristic look at life in the world uh, that we live in. Mm-hmm. But everybody is in the the virtual world, mm-hmm. much of their lives. They spend more of their lives in the virtual world than they do in the, the physical world, and mm-hmm. the physical world is falling apart. Exactly. But, and uh, so <laughs> the, the technology I'm referring to is it, in the the apartments that everyone lives in, they have a moving floor so that you can actually walk around and sort of walk in place, and the floor moves with you to keep you centered in the room. And that's based on a real moving floor hooked up to a real VR headset that someone is developing. And like you, you were saying that, uh, like they talk about in there too, in the movie haptic, mm-hmm. which is mm. a real thing. What is haptic? I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know how to explain what haptic means. So haptics are yet another one of those little things that, that comes into play that increases your immersion, that increases your sense of presence. Haptics is any, really any kind of, physical force feedback against you or your body. So a really like rudimentary and very common version of haptics is when your controller in a normal video game rumbles. Mm. You know, think mm-hmm. back to like the yeah. N64 rumble pack or the PlayStation controllers that, you know, they they vibrate, vibrate yeah. when you do stuff in the game. They, uh-huh. they vibrate in response to things that are happening in the game. So VR has often a very similar... Uh, sense of haptic feedback. The controllers usually have some form of a rumble so that if, for example, you, you're you playing a boxing game and you punch somebody in VR, you'll feel your hand rumble when you hit them. Cool. Uh, so that's, uh, that's the most rudimentary kind of haptic feedback that you can get. It's getting a lot more interesting than that as time progresses, though. Uh, so... One of the things that you would commonly see in media in VR is gloves. So right now everything is based on controllers, but traditionally everyone has gloves that, you know, you can like translate your fingers movements in real time into VR. And that's something that they're working on. But more interesting than just translating your movement is being able to provide haptic feedback with those gloves. So they'll make, they make gloves that, for example, if you reach out and grab something, the gloves will stop your fingers in the position 
where you're holding it. What? So you'll feel the resistance and feel like you're actually holding something in your hand. What? Uh, And to add to that, the really cool ones that are still in development have tiny little, they're actually like tiny little uh, bubbles, little air pockets that they'll, it's a really cool technology. They inflate these tiny little air pockets based on data from the game you're playing so that you actually feel pressure against the parts of your hand that are touching the thing. Get out. So the one of the examples that they showed is, had someone hold like a tiny bird in their hand, and they said they felt like a bird was walking across their hand. It was that fine and delicate that they could they could feel these wow. tiny sensations against their hand. Um, it's just astounding, and, and that that so again plays into haptics. Wow, losing using little air pockets. Uh huh. It's a it, it's a really neat technology, and it's. Uh, exactly as complicated as you think it would be filling up, you know, probably about a hundred tiny little air bubbles on your hand. Each one has its own little pump that runs back to a pumping station. It's like the first prototypes of this thing were the size of a refrigerator. Uh, But now they're working it down into something that's wearable uh, so that you can experience these, these like haptic force feedback gloves uh, on the consumer level someday. Probably within the next five or ten years, I would say. Wow, um, wow. I mean, you know that that that, that kind of gets me to wonder, like, you know, why would people want to be in the real world if you can create your own virtual reality where you are what you truly think you you should be? You know, because in the real world, you want to be a movie star. Right. Well, that's that's very very slim. Mm-hmm. But in your own virtual reality. You know, you, you can be that. Absolutely. And, you know, that is the, it's interesting because in some ways that's the scary part. Like people are going to feel like, like they're, they're going to get VR drunk on, they're going to get addicted. You know, the VR gonna, is more their reality than reality is their reality. Yeah. And that's, that's scary, but there's a pretty significant subset of individuals who have benefited greatly from that. And that's the handicapped. Oh yeah. Uh, people in wheelchairs who are able to put on a VR headset and use a controller with a joystick to move themselves around and, and get around and into places that they would never be able to get to. Uh, people who maybe they have deformities that make it hard to socialize. Uh, they can, wear an avatar in VR that looks nothing like them in the real life. People who have things like gender dysphoria, they can wear a VR avatar that represents who they feel they truly are on the inside. So for a lot of people, it actually serves as a form of therapy to be able to take a break from the harsh realities and, and feel like they are who they really are in virtual reality. Wow. Um, And actually, on a simpler note, uh, just in terms of like being able to treat things, apparently VR is really good for treating phobias. Uh, They love doing things like uh, if you have a fear of heights, stick you in a place where you're very high up off the ground. If you have a fear of spiders, put you in a room full of spiders and get you used to these things that you may have a phobia of without actually putting you in any danger. 
Um, Whoa. That's actually something that they've been, that has, there have been actual studies and experiments on things like that, uh, to yeah. my knowledge. Wow. I, I haven't dug into it terribly deeply, but a little Another bit of it something. is something. But yeah, there, there is something to that. Uh, there is something to the notion of being able to treat phobias or, or things of that nature through like an exposure therapy, but do it safely and in virtual reality instead of in the real world. Amazing. Yeah, you know, and uh, um, when you think, talk about people with like, you know, um, uh, representing themselves in a virtual reality as they see themselves. And I think maybe one of the, maybe one of the first ones, one of the games that I know of where people were mm -hmm. doing this and that was uh, World of Warcraft uh -huh. where you can create your own avatar, but you know, it's not, oh, yeah. it, it is a virtual reality kind mm -hmm. of, but not as immersive uh, as, you know, VR or what's, I'm right. sorry, the, the term you use so that you, you feel like you're actually uh, there. Presence. Yeah. It doesn't really have a presence. I mean, you're actually, right. you're looking at a screen, you have a keyboard, you have a mm -hmm. mouse. So you are, you know, you're playing that game, but mm -hmm. man, I can, wow. Just, I just had to think of like playing wow in the right. VR setting. Right. Like, you know, you're playing Dungeons and Dragons in, you know, in that Absolutely. setting, kind of. I mean, it's like, it's similar. Much, yeah. I mean, there, there are actual VR games like that. Uh, where you're act actually one of my one of my other favorites that I haven't messed around in too much with is uh, Tabletop Simulator, which is actually what? it's a game. It's it it predates VR actually. It's a game where you you play tabletop board games like you can play D and D, you can play solitaire, you can put together puzzles, things like that stuff you would do on your kitchen table. But it's all in a video game. And of course, VR came out and they immediately added a VR mode so that you can actually, you know, reach out and pick up the pieces and move them around the board, things yeah. like that. Play Risk. Um, with exactly. The, yeah. But exactly. you don't have to own the game. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, okay. well, actually, for a lot of those uh, copyrighted games, they, they will release a, a pack that's paid uh, for like Tabletop Simulator. So you, you buy Risk Basically, you buy risk in VR and then play it in VR. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty silly. Uh, but um, so another game that is similar to you, you were talking about World of Warcraft. Yeah. But another game similar to that that kind of let people put on a virtual identity was Second Life. That was a big deal for a little while there. It was kind of... I don't know what Second Life is. So Second Life was a, a massively multiplayer online game with no real goals and a ton of customization. So uh -huh. you could create your own custom models and avatars to represent yourself. Uh, you could build a house. You can, you can buy virtual land to live on and build a house there and, and do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and this is all way before VR was ever a thing. Uh, this was all happening on just normal computers as a normal game that you could just download and play. Um, the same kind of experiences are now happening in VR. Uh, a really popular one on social media is called VR Chat. And it's really the same idea. You can heavily customize your appearance, your behavior, uh, your animations to match what you whatever you want, really, anything, literally anything, and then go out and interact with 
everyone else in the world who's playing the game and come up with whatever scenarios or interactions you can possibly imagine. Um, it's a massively social experience that's all happening through virtual reality. I'm just trying to trying to I'm trying to wrap my head around that that uh, it's a social, but not really social. It's it's interesting to think about where you want to draw the line there because at that point you know you're actually you're greeting people and looking at them and waving at them. And yes, they're, they're wearing, they're basically wearing a virtual costume, but your physical motions, your, your speech, you're still talking to them. They're still hearing you. Uh, and that actually brings, brings up one of the really interesting other, uh, advances in VR technology. That's probably just around the corner. Some headsets already have it and that's eye tracking. Mm. And that's a, a whole nother rabbit hole that's really interesting to go down. The idea that, so within your VR headset, like you're staring at the lenses in front of you and you're pretty much just looking straight forward the whole time. Uh, and if you're interacting with other people in games, they pretty much just see your head staring straight forward. But eye tracking adds the ability to see what part of the screen you're looking at and detect those very subtle movements in your eyes that happen while you're, for example, having a conversation with someone. Can even detect if you're blinking or if your eyebrows are, or you're getting angry or sad or things like that. Um, and so you get this level of this, just this little extra touch of face detection. And all of a sudden you're not just transmitting speech, you're transmitting emotions, uh, through these social VR experiences. Okay, you just blew my mind, man. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. this whole com- this whole conversation did blow my mind. But <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, seriously, that's I mean, that will I think that that um if we get to that type of a level of social interaction mm-hmm. and get rid of like, you know, anonymous uh trolling, mm-hmm. you know, where I wonder if that would make us a better society where you're actually interacting with something, even though it's a virtual thing, because right now you can get online and just right, troll. Right. My name is, you right, know, right. uh, oobly doobly 79. And then oobly doobly 79 is just mm-hmm. like, you know, trashing you for whatever you're doing, but you, it's not something you would do in real life. You know, you wouldn't right, go right. up to that person and just trash them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, then in a virtual reality, you would think that maybe, you know, you have a little bit more, uh, empathy. Maybe so. In that type. Well, and I, I tend to think that we're at a weird phase of internet culture right now. Uh, and maybe we're even starting to reach a point where we're getting past it a little bit, uh, just slightly, where people are starting to empathize more. But I, I tend to be of the opinion that uh, the internet is going through a phase right now where no one knows how to deal with it. None of us grew up with none, none of us adults right now grew up with the internet. Uh, we maybe had I don't know at, about that. We, well, that's what I'm saying though, is we're getting to the point where adults there, there are adults who've had internet access for their entire lives. And that's I think not, I mean, that, come on, you're looking at the nineties. Eh, 
you know, like early 90s. So that's what? That's the, 25 the, years ago, 26 years ago. They're the inter- definitely in. The internet in the 90s was a lot different than the internet today. Uh, uh, agreed. I, I, would, I would almost define the modern internet's era as being like, it, it kind of revolves around social media. So I'm thinking more about when things like Facebook or Twitter or, or even just like forums started to become big enough that they they were less like a small group of friends and more like a town full of people. Um, when the internet reached that point. Um, Maybe even when uh, people were able to leave a comment on, you know, um, things on the internet, like, you know, New York Times article, mm-hmm. whatever, and you can leave a comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things like that. Just just that okay. that level of of a, a higher level of interaction between individuals using the internet. So you know, I think uh, just to add to that is that mm-hmm. I think I think a defining thing there is when mm-hmm. video mm. is very much capable on the internet. That is a defining thing, certainly, absolutely. because that was that's a lot of freaking right. data. Sending like video is a lot of data, and now absolutely. you're getting it at four K. Good God, uh-huh. that's that's just massive amounts it's of true. data. And, um, and so I think that right there, I can see that as being a real defining point of when the internet is, you know, um, where you have to go on and read different articles to now you've got YouTube, et cetera, where you can just get visuals. I think that's sure. a good, that's a good definition of, you know, modern internet compared to previous. For sure. And so, so right now we have maybe just the most recent generation of adults who've had access to that their whole lives. But everyone older than that, we may not have encountered these things young enough to develop real coping mechanisms oh, for yeah. the kind of crazy stuff that goes on on the internet. Like cyberbullying. Exactly. Like, so. Never knew what that was when I was a kid. Exactly. And so, so none of us know how to deal with that. Even a lot of our, even a lot of our kids, like today's teenagers, are having difficulty dealing with that and figuring out how to navigate that. But, they're having to navigate it. And so they're developing tools that they'll pass on to their kids for coping with these things. So I think it's very likely that the next generation of, of kids, like maybe the upcoming, like kids born after the year 2000, or maybe even after the year 2010, will be a lot better equipped to deal with the, the harshness of the internet. And maybe it'll get a little bit softer because of that. Um, I would like to see that happen because I think it would make things like virtual reality help. It, it would help that take off as a social experience as well. Yeah. Like I think a lot of, a lot of these things kind of go hand in hand as building up a, a, the internet as a place that feels less like a bunch of people shouting at each other and more like a place where a community can happen. And it does happen. And it does. It does happen. It's absolutely. A, that's, there are definitely communities within on the internet. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, and, okay, so we get to use VR, virtual reality, you, because of like, we talk about the Oculus Rift, it's all on the system itself. It's all right. local. So when you're using VR, is there much that goes, that's interactive on the internet? Absolutely. Uh, everything is still capable. Well, so, so the headsets that are, the, there are headsets that are wired to your computer. Obviously those are getting internet access. Yeah, yeah. Even, even the standalone headsets like the Oculus Quest, they still have Wi-Fi. They're still able to connect for online multiplayer experiences. Um, and actually one of the things that I am seeing a little bit of and would like to see a lot more of is VR in, uh, 
what used to be and maybe one day again will be arcades. Oh, yeah. Uh, VR arcades are starting to become a thing. Yeah, I saw one in Portland not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, Didn't go in, but yeah, I saw that. Yeah. The um, the laser tag place here in, in, oh, that's in right. Pullman, they, yeah. they started doing arcade, like VR arcade stuff as well. Really? And actually, so the Oculus Quest, uh, there's a, a game developer who's building basically VR laser tag, like literally just VR laser tag. So an arcade would just hand out an Oculus Quest to every every person who wants to play. In a big open room. In a big open room. Yeah. Or if you just have a bunch of friends who have them, you just all get together in like a gym or something and pop into your virtual world and play online multiplayer VR laser tag against each other in a virtual environment with all kinds of all all kinds of the crazy like toys and guns and equipments and rooms and layouts and all the stuff that you could imagine you could do in VR because at that point, like your the limit is your imagination really. Oh, um, wow. And we know that can be very big. Oh yes. Oh yes. So you can imagine something like one of these VR laser tag places building like a, a capture the flag scenario where you have to navigate some, some ridiculous maze but instead of having to build the maze in real life, they just have a software developer build it for them, which is a lot less time and resource intensive. Wow. And then if they want, they can change it up the next week and have a completely different scenario for people to play. Bring, keep bringing people back. There's a I, I want to go of, there. Right? There's a lot of potential there. I, I really want to do that. That sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. I agree. Yeah, let's let's go to Mars and <laughs> yep. play capture the flag. Yep, absolutely, I'm in with our robot friends. Man, well, with any luck, I'll be one of the guys building that that game. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of these days. Yeah, one of these days. Well, I keep at it, man. Oh yeah, it starts yeah. small. Everything does. Oh yeah. So you know what this this also reminds me of. Um, um, you're talking about going into a virtual reality that's uh, with a Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the hollow deck, the hollow deck, yeah. Now that that just blows my mind. So a friend of mine had the uh, a comet has mm-hmm. it, or still has had the uh, uh, basically how everything on Star Trek worked. Ah, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if it's the encyclopedia of Star mm-hmm. Trek or something, but the way that the uh, the ver- the 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 room worked. What's it called mm-hmm. again? I can't help me out here. The holodeck. The holodeck. Why can't I remember holodeck? <laughs> come on. Uh, come on. I, I've, I've watched all the Star Trek. <laughs> I should remember holodeck. So anyway, mm. um, is that it's all done with, with, um, uh, force fields. Right. Right. So if you walk away, there's a force field that comes under you. And so you walk on this force field. Yeah. If you see a tree and you grab the tree, the tree is a force field. Mm-hmm. You can be in the same room, but if we walk because it's, it's a very, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a huge space, but you walk. So we start walking, separating from each other. We kind of go a certain distance and then another force field comes between us and an image becomes between us. So it looks right, like you're going right. away and I'm going away. Mm-hmm. So I can see where virtual reality is going in that direction. How Star Trek is real, man. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, that, and that, that much of my life. Star Trek is real. <laughs> and that's exactly it is the holodeck is like the holy grail of VR. That's what every VR developer dreams of. We want this experience to be like the holodeck yeah. because the holodeck is 
like the embodiment of that concept of presence because everything about it is designed to make you feel like you're really there interacting with real people in a real environment. Um, What we're finding that's really interesting in VR is that creating that sense of presence isn't as hard as you'd expect. Uh, You actually don't have to have very good graphics to make... You don't have to make it look perfectly realistic to convince someone that they're in a real place talking to a real person. Exactly why that is, I don't know yet. But I can stick somebody who looks like they walked out of an anime in front of you and you'll talk to them like a real person. It's really interesting. Uh, One of the first experiences I had... So so going back to the beginning of my experiences on VR, like I, the very first... The very first thing I ever did was try out a demo at a convention, and that was cool, and I was kind of like, okay, this is neat, but maybe someday it'll be really cool. Then we got an Oculus Rift headset at Murrow uh, for the purposes of research, and I helped set it up. At Murrow College of Communication at at Washington State University. Absolutely. Uh, And I helped set it up and tried an experience where you're in this like really super basic polygonal world. It looks more like somebody's artwork than a real place. It looks like it came out of the, like the N64 or the original PlayStation era of graphics. Everything's flat shaded straight lines and you're by a river next to a fire and there's a Fox. And if you looked at it on the screen, you would think, Oh, that's kind of pretty. But when you stand there in VR even though it's very clearly all like this this computer-generated image, you still feel a sense of presence, like you're there in that place, even though none of it looks like anything that exists in the real world. And so it's, it's really interesting because we, we are able to develop that sense so much faster than anyone would have ever guessed. Like no one would have thought that you could feel like you're in a real place right now by putting on a headset yeah, in a, an octagonal or, you know, yeah. rudimentary straight line world. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so what, one of the, one of the really fun things that valve did, um, when you first start up your HTC Vive, you're in a big empty white space. And the first thing everyone thinks of is the Matrix. Yeah, uh-huh. I bet. It's exactly like that. Matrix 4 is coming out there working on it, by the way. If you didn't oh, boy. Did you I, see that? I, I'm heard. assuming you saw that. I heard. Yeah. I haven't looked into and it a lot. but I just I had to go and do a little search because I saw it, I think, on like, uh, you know, probably Imager or something like that. And, well, okay, going to do a little Googling. And, yeah, from what the Google says mm-hmm. is that, yeah, this is actually a thing. Uh, I'm... I'm interested. I won't say whether or not I'm excited, but I'm interested yeah, to a, see what it's going to become. The, the Matrix movies were, mm-hmm. they were, they were, they were very interesting. Yeah. You, you do have to wonder what a Matrix movie would look like with the current context of technology and the internet and social media. Yeah. Like what would change in that concept well, of I, a purely I, virtual world? Yeah, well, you'd have to be, you know, um, you'd be there without a head, you know, <laughs> you know, like you know, just the first person shooter kind of a thing. Right? What was that movie? There's a movie like that. 
Oh, um, were, were your first person movie? Yeah, I can't remember what it's called, okay. but I remember it being really goofy looking. Yeah, it was really goofy looking. <laughs> it, and uh, I, yeah, I actually watched it. And I'm like, you know, it, it was okay. I was entertained because there's a you see a lot of the same mm-hmm. characters played by the same actor, different mm-hmm. characters, I should say, played by the same actor. Uh, movie, let's see, first person movie. I'm gonna look that up. First person mm. movie. Yeah, you you have a you have a drink. First person movie. Uh, Cloverfield. <laughs> Kinda. That uh, would be interesting. Hardcore Henry. Hardcore Henry. So violent. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So you know that actually brings up another really interesting aspect of virtual reality, which is that a lot of filmmakers are really drawn to it. I could see that. Uh yeah, so yeah, go on. the Lion King remake that just happened, mm-hmm. who, who was the director of that? No idea. Pretty famous director. Uh, he, he directed the movie in VR. He would use VR to build out scenes and, and look at different camera angles and make sure everything looked correctly and effectively directed the movie using VR. Wow. Yeah. He actually um, developed an early VR experience, I guess you'd call it, called Gnomes and Goblins. Really super, you know, it, it was well polished, but very simple and basic. It just puts you in the middle of like a, a magical looking forest. And there are a bunch of these little tiny uh, goblin creatures that live in the trees in little houses that they carved out of the trees. And so you can, you can walk around and you can open the little doors of the little houses or their little windows and look inside their little houses and see them running around doing stuff. Uh, you can pick an apple off the tree and hand it to one of them and they'll walk up and kind of scared looking, but they'll, they'll eventually walk up and take it from you. And I actually use that to introduce a lot of people who've never done VR to the idea because it's, it's a really simple concept that it's putting you in this place that doesn't exist in the real world and you can walk around and explore it and look at it and interact with it in some very basic and rudimentary ways. But it's one of those things that you realize the potential of VR very quickly when you're in that experience, interacting with these things and feeling like you're really there in some enchanted forest. And that Gnomes and Goblins experience was developed by, directed by, the same person who directed the new Lion King uh, wow. remake. He he took that experience and, and used it to direct that movie. Okay, I'm looking it up. Yeah. Lion King <laughs> director, director, 2019. Boom. Thank you, Google. Um, John Favreau? Yes, that's who it was. John I knew it was, Favreau? I, yeah, I knew you it know, was someone important. Well, you know that guy... Yeah, just to, just to kind of talk about John Favreau for a second. Yeah, the, I know him because I used to was really fascinated by his uh, show on the uh, independent film channel mm-hmm. that uh, he would have uh, people around a table with dinner and have mm. dinner with friends or whatever it was called. Mm. And then they sit there and smoke cigars and gotcha. just like I really like that little show. And then this yep. guy basically just became huge. Uh-huh. Wasn't it like his first big one was like uh, um, uh, uh, Elf? I think ah, was his big yeah. one. And then, of course, he did Iron Man, which uh-huh. exploded the Marvel yep. Universe. 
And now he's doing all this stuff with with Disney, with the Lion King, VR. with everything, and he's he's using VR as a a major tool in developing this. Wow! So okay. that that that's yet another aspect of VR wow. that that you maybe don't realize until you you try it, which is that you can use it as a tool to like build out things like a movie. You could use it to build like a prototype of a set without having to build the actual thing walk around this prototype set and figure out where all your camera angles are going to be, plan your shots, things like that, before anything has even been built. Uh, or you can use it to direct an entirely CG animated movie like The Lion King. Wow. So there's a huge potential there. The other thing that's really interesting, though, is coming from another angle, is creating films that you experience in VR where you're actually watching a story play out around you. And um, that was another aspect of this Gnomes and Goblins thing that John Favreau uh, uh, created and directed. Uh, but there are also other, other directors and creative people creating basically short films that happen in VR. Um, one that I'm really excited to experience, and I hope I get to someday because they only play it at like one film festival, um, Neil Gaiman has a children's book called The Wolves in the Walls, and he's been working with a, an independent developer to build a VR experience based on the children's book. And apparently it's just wonderful. It's won all kinds of awards. They've released like a chapter a year for the past couple of years, but only at the actual festival. But I find that idea fascinating of being able to take a story that you know and love and being able to plant yourself into it in VR and be a part of that story, experiencing it. Not just watching it on a screen, but experiencing it in person. That'd be cool. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, Good Omens on uh, Amazon Prime. Highly recommended. Good show. Yeah. Um, but so that that actually... One of the things that I find really interesting about that is when filmmakers look at VR, you have to approach it from a completely different angle. Filmmakers, storytellers, just in general. Because all of a sudden, unlike video games, unlike movies, unlike anything else, you have zero control over where your, uh, where your participant is looking. So you can make something really cool happen and they'll never see it because they were looking the other way. <laughs> it's apparently a, it's a huge challenge really. Yeah. Um, so you, you kind of have to completely rethink how you tell a story in VR based on the notion that the person watching the story, experiencing the story has their own free will and the ability to interact with the story however they see fit. Yeah. Unless you're a completionist, you know. Unless you're a completionist, and then you've got to see every nook and cranny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to do that with some video games, but not all of them, but yeah. Same here. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Um, yet another interesting uh, application of VR that uh, is, again, an, another one of those things where once you realize what it's capable of, you're just like, wow. Uh, I get another wow? Okay, yeah. I'm in. So 
Is it Intel? I think it's Intel. Intel is working with the NFL to... Basically, what they do is they put cameras all around the perimeter of the football field that gather data about the game that's being played. They compile all that data into what's basically a giant 3D model of the game being played, and then you can insert yourself into that game in VR. So you can literally stand in the middle of the field while the football game is happening around you. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's the reason I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's Intel. It might be IBM. I'm pretty sure it's Intel. The reason they're involved is that they're pushing massive, massive, massive amounts of data. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. they're building every, every frame of this game in three dimensions uh, as it happens. Can you um, imagine the processing power? It's insane. It's absolutely insane. There's, there's so much information just being pumped through into this system that builds this. It's, uh, it's mind boggling. Uh, but that, I think that was happening about two years ago. So who knows where it's at now? Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, then that could be with any sporting event. Absolutely. Any sporting event. And so you can, you can look at that recording, that 3d recording and use VR to plant yourself in the middle of the field and look out through a player's helmet and see what they were seeing. Wow. See their line of sight. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that quarterback isn't as bad as you thought. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you can, you can yell at the exactly. screen all you want. Didn't he see that guy was open? Well, no, he didn't. He yeah. couldn't. You can go yeah. in the VR and see. Exactly. Wow. It's, it's. Well, just think of how far it just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, when was it the TV got to be just the television itself was, you know, 1950s is mm. when they really started to be popular, you know, mm -hmm. seeing everywhere. And look how far we've come in 70 years. It's crazy. It's crazy. 80 years? So for me, someone who's really into video games, I mean, I, I was born in 86, right around the time the NES was just taking off. Like, we, I think it was released in the U.S. in like 85, 86. So right around when I was born. And Super Mario Brothers was the latest, greatest state-of-the-art video game. Yeah. So in my lifetime, we've gone from Super Mario Brothers to full-on, like, fully interactive virtual reality, and who knows where it'll go from here. I love it. it I, I honestly love, like, this is, this is like, my, my happiest life is watching this technology and the people developing it and all of this just grow and develop and, and turn into something that... As a kid, at best, I would have dreamed about it. Like, it, it, it's no one would have ever guessed that it would come this far this quickly. I love it. And who knows where it's going to go from here? Who knows? Who knows? Well, it, it's really almost impossible to predict. There's, there's so many, so much potential there. So many different. You know, one of, the, one of the things that I like to think about when I think of VR is that it's really not just one technology. It's not like we just invented VR out of thin air and it oh. suddenly was there and it worked. It's the culmination of a lot of little technologies that all improved and developed over decades and all fed into each other and started working together and coming together into this thing that is greater than the sum of its parts. And I just see all of these other technologies that come in 
that have the potential to feed into this and turn it into something bigger than any of us can imagine. That's just great. Well, hey, man, thanks for coming in. I think it's a great spot to end. Absolutely. Yeah, really. <laughs> thanks, Devin. Really appreciate you coming in, really. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. You know, uh, you can probably tell I can talk about this stuff for hours on end. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. Still blowing my mind what's happening in virtual reality. Wow. You know, I've actually looked into getting a... Uh, a virtual reality setup like uh, Devin was talking about. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit more money than I want to spend right now, but definitely interested, want to do more of it. Certainly a lot of fun. And um, I think this podcast is a lot of fun. And if you like it, please tell your friends, share it widely, um, because you, the tens of listeners of conversations, are the real marketing force behind this podcast. Um, that's what I like. Get that the ground swell of support, if uh, that's what you call it. And a big thank you to Moscow Brewing Company for supporting this podcast. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. But uh, that's it. I'm Tom Cocaine, your host. Over and out. <laughs>